Hello, and welcome to Mindful You at Naropa, a podcast presented by Naropa University in Boulder, Colorado. I'm your host, David Devine, and it's a pleasure to welcome you. Joining the best of Eastern and Western educational traditions, Naropa is the birthplace of the modern mindfulness movement. Hello. Today I'd like to welcome Stephen Polk to the podcast. Stephen is a core candidate assistant professor in the Environmental Studies and MA Resilient Leadership Program. So welcome to our podcast. Uh, thank you. Glad to be here. Would you like to introduce yourself a little bit? Yeah. My name is Stephen Polk and I actually grew up in the Denver metro area. Mm-hmm. I received BA and MA in political science. I also have uh, numerous uh, certificates in permaculture. Um, so of course the permaculture design course and advanced teaching course. And I've done a number of other, uh, workshops and currently I'm in a mentorship with Jason Gerhardt, mm-hmm. a preeminent per- permaculturalist here in Denver or used to live here in the Denver Boulder area, but relocated to St. Louis. And so soon I will have a permaculture diploma in permaculture, but, uh, my studies really combine, politics and permaculture Mm -hmm. and it is at this intersection that I've been putting a lot of time and energy not only on paper and you know at the computer screen but Mm -hmm. also on the ground yeah and what you will be talking about today the ideal city so if you'd like to go ahead and tell us what you think the ideal city is (laughs) great I've always been attracted to urban environments Mm -hmm. and you know, growing up in the suburbs, the, the city was always like that cool place that I wanted to be where everything was happening. Yeah. So I spent the last 17 years living in Denver and I also spent a short time in New York City, but I love the density. Like I love the pace uh, of cities. And so that's reflected in my scholarship. Mm-hmm. So in addition to studying politics and studying and engaging in permaculture, Uh, I also have a strong affinity in my scholarship and also activism to the urban center. In this ideal city, well, actually, before we begin, I think it's important that we don't have a whole lot of imagination when it comes to envisioning alternatives to the existing system. Mm -hmm. How might the city look differently if you were given more power to shape the contours of the cityscape or mm-hmm. to shape the institutional fabric. And I think if you were to pose that question, a lot of people would you know, pull up blanks or even <laughs> politically. If you were to ask yeah. someone, how could our system be organized different politically? Mm-hmm. Perhaps you would draw blanks. Or how could our system be organized different economically? Mm-hmm. What might a different economic system look like? And how could that economic system provide more material security, freedom, and whatever else, <laughs> that that is, you know, that the people would still draw blanks. So uh, this podcast really is trying to cultivate this idea of our urban imaginary, mm-hmm. uh, to cultivate a political imaginary and economic imaginary. And what I mean by that is the ability to imagine something different than what exists currently. So in this idea city, we're going to be imagining uh, what it might be like in a different way. And so there are you know thousands of different aspects of a a city ecosystem 
um, that I could have chosen to yeah. uh, address, but I'm going to address just four. And okay. these four I have, all four I have direct experience with. Okay. Um, and they are community ownership, mm -hmm. ecological sensibility, economic democracy, and people power. Mm. So we're going to go through each one of these and highlight some of how it might exist in the city. Okay. So this first one is premised on the idea of community ownership. Mm -hmm. So if we look at um, in community ownership, by community ownership, I mean community ownership of housing, mm -hmm. community ownership of the workplace or like worker-owned cooperatives, yeah. and also to community like ownership of the institutional fabric as well. And community ownership of institutions we have to a certain degree, at least in theory, mm -hmm. um, you know, the government or public system um, is run by our tax dollars and you know, yeah. we have some democratic power there. We can run for office, essentially. But I'm really interested in this idea of community ownership of housing. So there's two models that we've been presented with over the years. The first is private ownership of mm -hmm. housing. And this is the dominant ownership model yeah. that we're facing today. Individuals or, you know, companies um, like mortgage companies or development companies own a majority of the housing stock in this mm -hmm. country and they can buy and sell that housing stock on the market. Yeah. And then the other model is state ownership. And this is a model that was a key component of the urban redevelopment programs of the 1950s and 1960s. Mm -hmm. It's where the government, like, you know, will own a housing project and people rent from the government. Mm -hmm. uh, but these two models, I argue, are ultimately failed. So if we're to mm -hmm. look at private ownership in Denver currently, there is an 80,000 unit shortfall for affordable housing units. Mm -hmm. And the statistic means that there are 80,000 people in just the city of Denver alone yeah. who are rent stressed or they're paying more than 30% of their income to rent. Mm. And this happens, this is happening at the same time that Denver is going through a construction boom in, uh, yeah. in apartments and condos and in housing. Yeah. The logic of the market has it that that housing is only going to be built for people with money, uh, where the profit margins are the highest. Housing is not going to be built to meet the needs of mm -hmm. very real needs of, you know, 80,000 of its residents. It would yeah. rather cater to those who can pay you know, a million dollars for a new condo mm -hmm. in a ball ballpark neighborhood or lower downtown neighborhood. Yeah. And so there's something fundamentally flawed about the private ownership model of housing. And when you start trading housing on the market, you also inevitably will create scarcity. Mm -hmm. um, so someone is always going to be excluded from the private housing model. You also have state ownership. Mm -hmm. And there are numerous examples of state ownership housing projects throughout the, the 60s and the 70s. One of the most famous is the Pruitt-Igo housing projects. And for many reasons, the Pruitt-Igo uh, model failed. But I think we can safely say that the public housing model is not a robust model either. Yeah. Can you explain that model to me? Because I've never heard that. So what, is, what does that mean? Yeah, so housing projects were a response by the government in the 50s, 60s, and 70s to meet a very real need of housing. Okay. Um, and so public governments, oftentimes with the aid of the federal government, built these large, massive housing projects. Mm -hmm. And what happened a lot with these public housing projects is that they concentrated poverty in 
in very high density areas. Yeah. And what often resulted from that was crime, unhealthy disproportionate impact on the overall community. And, you know, the Pruitt Igo housing complex was eventually destroyed. It was, it, you know, blown up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Essentially destroyed. Yeah. Blown up. <laughs> but, I mean, yeah, literally toppled. I think a lot of that was because, I mean, you know, perhaps, I mean, that the fact that it was destroyed is an indication of just how, or just the, the emotional, economic, and political toll that, you know, such a model exacted on the citizens of St. Louis or the pruitt Igo housing complex mm-hmm. existed. And so the pruitt Igo housing complex is just one housing complex in St. Louis, yeah. in, you know, among many across the country. Yeah. <clears throat> and there actually have been more or less successful, I think, you know, models of different public housing models. But at the end of the day, the federal government can be just as exploitative or... Uh, out of touch with the residents' needs as private housing developers. Mm-hmm. And so the third way, the the third sort of or middle path here uh, is community ownership. This model can take, it, there's numerous examples of this model currently, and they can exist in different forms. So cooperative housing is a means of uh, community ownership. So communities, they are people, members of this co-op, they become a member of the co-op and when they become a member of the co-op they become a co-owner of it and when they become a co-owner in the cooperative movement in general it is democratic so every member owner in a co-op has a vote one member one vote so it's member owned democratically controlled and it's affordable there's some nuance with cooperative housing some of it some models within cooperative housing are not affordable but we're actually creating uh, a limited equity co-op at our house right now yeah. where individuals can receive limited return mm-hmm. on their investment in the form of equity in the organization that they're living in. But that amount of equity is limited so that we can provide affordability and perpetuity. Mm-hmm. So it's member-owned, democratically controlled, affordable housing. And mm-hmm. we think that we can scale this model. But we think that this model is most effective because the members who live there own it. And if you own something, you're not only emotionally invested and you're not only engaged in democratic process with your neighbors, which I think is incredibly healthy, but you also have an equity stake or ownership stake in the house. And I think all of those things spell for increased investment in the house. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it just it, it creates the conditions for optimal care of mm-hmm. us. Yeah. Um, so and we think that this model, you know, should be the number one model <laughs> like across cities. And of course, you know, it's not the silver bullet. I'm sure there's going to be, you know, problems uh, just like with any human creation. And it's, you know, scaling up and implementation like yeah. across cities. But we think that it should at least be explored. Yeah. yeah. So um, after community ownership is this idea of wh- that I think is critical to the ideal city is uh, kind of like a, a, a personal individual, but also interpersonal and uh, social mm. sensibility, uh, which I, I call ecological sensibility. Yeah. And it is something, again, that we don't have a lot of in our culture. Mm-hmm. And in order to explain ecological sensibility, I want to use permaculture. Uh, yeah. But permaculture is a combination of permanent culture and permanent agriculture. Mm. And it's approach to landscape design that is ethical. So there's a set of ethics in permaculture design. Yeah. 
there is a set there's a set of principles in uh, permaculture there's also like a underlying philosophy of how humans should and could relate to the ecosystems that surround them mm -hmm. so permaculture as a discipline is an approach to designing ecosystems and social systems and but in this approach it equips people with the knowledge or the literacy, the ecological literacy mm -hmm. that is necessary to, in order to interact in ecosystems and social systems in a way that is beneficial and yeah. also effective. And that sort of ecological literacy, you know, again, is lacking. Um, it also bestows upon people the correct skills and technical knowledge uh, in order to maximize energy use mm -hmm. and in order to, for example, collect water off of your roof mm -hmm. in order to, uh, you know, water the plants. And yeah. here in the, the desert high plains of Boulder and Denver, you know, collecting and storing the energy is absolutely essential. Mm -hmm. um, so it encompasses that. Um, but the ultimate aim, I think, with permaculture is teaching people that, you know, ecosystems matter. The ecosystems mm. provide all yeah. life on the planet and the more we damage ecosystems the more we damage ourselves and yeah. so with this broken relationship that currently society has with ecosystems permaculture um you know offers a different relationship and i think a re mm -hmm. relationship that is ultimately more powerful yeah so if we're thinking about this in terms of an ideal city we need people engaging and interacting with ecosystems in a way that benefits people and the planet mm -hmm and also generates a surplus. Yeah, and if we're if we're not following the ecosystem of the location we are living in, then we're essentially going against the grain. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Well, and we're expending a whole lot of energy and going mm -hmm. against the grain. Our yeah. lives could be a whole lot easier if we were to harness the power of nature yeah. and work with it. And the earth would really enjoy that. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> well, and we would enjoy it too. Definitely. Um so in addition to ecological sustainability, this is uh, the other aspect I want to touch on is economic democracy. Mm -hmm. And economic democracy, I mean, a lot of people, when you say that term, probably don't necessarily know what it means. Um, but we live in a democratic, a so-called democratic country. Yeah. But dem democracy for us is only, is limit is very limited in the in a political sense, mm -hmm. where maybe every two <coughs> to four years we can vote. Yeah. And... And I think that, I mean, voting itself, however important and essential it is, I think is a largely ineffectual form of political participation, mm -hmm. um, that we need to expand democracy to mean not only making decisions together in the political sense, but also in the economic sense. And there's a lot of models that we can utilize and utilize as guides in democratizing our economy, mm -hmm. democratizing the workplace. For example, the Mondragon Corporation in Spain employs 80,000 people. Oh, wow. And it's one of the 10th largest corporations in Spain. Mm -hmm. And it's a, a, a cooperative. And mm. as I was mentioning before, just as with housing cooperatives mm -hmm. and worker cooperatives, every member owner it has one vote. So one member, one vote. Every member of the cooperative owns the cooperative. And so it is a, a, a model, as Mondragon in Spain demonstrates, that uh, can be implemented to scale yeah. uh, and is also incredibly successful. But one aspect of this economic democracy that I really want to focus on is the pay differential between managers and owners mm -hmm. compared to the pay differential between managers and owners here in the United States. Mm -hmm. So in the Mondragon 
cooperative because I think in large part due to its democratic nature, the pay differential between the average manager and the average worker is five to one. In some uh, sectors in Mondragon, the pay scale is 10 to one. In other sectors, it's three to one, mm -hmm. but the average is five to one. Now compare that to the United States where we don't have economic democracy. Mm -hmm. uh, and in fact, most of the business decisions are made by a managerial class of people mm -hmm. um, where the average worker has no control over what is produced, how it's produced, pay and relative pay, pay distribution uh, and relative to you know, other workers. But the pay scale can be as high as 500 to one, especially if we're talking about CEO to average worker. Yeah. Uh, and some That's industries even higher. Mm -hmm. um, and so that not only creates more inequality, which has its own host of problems, mm -hmm. but it's also very undemocratic. Yeah. You know, and as a so-called democratic people, I'm surprised that people in the United States put up with this, you know, because there yeah. are models out there where, uh, where we can exert more control, uh, where mm -hmm. we can have more democracy. I think we should equate democracy with freedom, mm -hmm. um, that we should advocate more for both. Yeah. Um, so that's the idea behind economic democracy. Very cool. Some work to be done on that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> a lot of work to be done on that. And then so finally, I'm going to focus on this idea of people power. And this is the fourth aspect of the ideal city. And one way I describe this is that I was walking in my neighborhood, it's Capitol Hill in Denver, and there's a new luxury apartment complex going in down the street. Mm -hmm. And I was like, man, you know, that's going to create upward pressure on rents, you know, that displaced the people who lived there before. You know, gentrification in Denver, just like in every other major city across the country, is yeah. like really having a detrimental and disastrous impact on our cities. Mm -hmm. um, but I was like, man, what, what would it take for people of modest means or people like myself uh, living in a cooperative that operate on that operate with others on a democratic process. Mm -hmm. What would it take for us to be able to get into a, uh, a situation of power or a position of power in order to dictate what was being built, where those luxury apartments or luxury condos were being built? Mm -hmm. And so I think this is an incredibly important aspect of an ideal city. And I often use permaculture as a example of this, but in permaculture you know, we can create the most beautiful social, ecological landscape designs that are ethical, mm -hmm. that provide for people's needs. But if those designs, or if we don't, if permaculturalists or, you know, cooperativists or, you know, activists or anarchists or whoever, if we don't have a seat at the decision-making table where all the decisions are made that shape the cityscape, mm -hmm. um, unless, we don't, unless we can realize our own power, those designs are never going to extend beyond the personal property line, and they're not mm -hmm. going to extend beyond the drafting table. So if we're serious about these ideas of an alternative city that is more just, humane, ecologically sustainable, that is more free and more democratic, mm -hmm. then we need to first recognize what power is. And then beyond that, we need to understand yeah. how to get power <laughs> yeah. and then to exercise power in line with our values, in yeah. line with who we've feel that we are as a as a people you know ethical yeah. moral spiritual whatever so there's a lot of ways that you can do this but in uh, and I won't go into those but I do just want to really talk about the contemplative aspect of building community mm -hmm. um, because ultimately our power lies in people power mm -hmm. we need other people in order as a source of our power and in contrast, elites have organized money as their mm -hmm. power. So we need to have organized people because we don't have a lot of money. Yeah. And so 
and this is where I think a huge contemplative aspect of activism resides. And we mentioned this a little bit before by living cooperatively, but the aspect of living with the other, of being able to reconcile your own self-interest in the context of a larger whole, which I actually think is at the heart of democracy, but that aspect itself is contemplative in the sense that first you're able to learn more about what your self-interests are and what your needs and desires are, material, mm -hmm. spiritual, otherwise. Yeah. So you develop a greater intimacy of self. And then in the context of a larger whole, when you're reconciling that self-interest, you learn that you are uh, intimately connected to every other person that you're interacting with and that the health of other people in your community is also necessary for your health. And so individual health, individuals create strong communities, strong communities foster individuals. And so the more that you engage in this democratic process, you, the more that you realize that the distance between self-interest and community interest is probably much shorter than you thought mm -hmm. because it's based on the realization that almost all spiritual lineages have, which is everything is connected. We are all connected. <coughs> Socially, we're just as connected to the farmer and the truck driver driving our produce yeah. as we are the soil organisms that helped grow that food. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's really where the contemplative aspect of, mm -hmm. of community living resides yeah. um, and where we can realize our humanity, our individual nature in concert with others in order to create and bring about an ideal city based on ideas of community ownership, ecological sustainability, economic democracy, and people power. Mm, beautiful. It's really interesting to think how community and dialogue can take you so far and to have the democratic process, to actually have a, a truthful, engaged democratic process and collectively see what everyone else is thinking and wanting and mm -hmm. How can we all benefit together? Since we are living together, we are in community, what benefits the whole? Yeah, right. Working right. as a unit. Right. And what benefits the whole benefits the individual. <laughs> yes, true. <laughs> you Ultimately. know, it, 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 we could scale that example up to, you know, society currently, but there is politically right there mm -hmm. are, or libertarians, for example, libertarians in the United States. Actually, the word libertarian comes... It used to intone someone on the like far radical left mm -hmm. um, in Europe and libertarian. You like if you, if you're to state it properly, you have to say United States libertarian. If you're referring to libertarians here, um, yeah. <clears throat> which are on the right and they're anti-tax. But you know, there's a a sentiment of you know someone saying, "Well, I don't want to pay for schools because I don't have any school-aged children anymore." And so that person's self-interest is not being. Uh, apparently is not being met or seemingly not being met by paying taxes for schools. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, why should they pay? But if we didn't have education in this society or any civilization did not have some form of education, mm -hmm. uh, we would not be where we are today. So yeah. education benefits <clears throat> everyone. It may yeah. not be apparent right in front of you, but if you were to take away some of those social safety nets or the social services that we all chip in to provide, mm -hmm. You know, perhaps we'd be approaching barbarism. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. it's, all, it's all an investment to becoming a greater community, society, um, collectiveness. Mm -hmm. you know? So if we're all willing to invest and put our personalness aside mm -hmm. and come together, we all benefit. Mm -hmm. And like you said, it, it's all beneficial to everyone. So 
Right. I, I, I subscribe to that. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Right. And of course, the, the state, I don't think, is a very effective model for the administration of you know, society in general. I think we can come up with better models. But at least for right now, it's, you know, yeah. it's, it's, it's what the best that we have. Awesome. So, so I really appreciate you being on our podcast today. It was really fun talking to you. Yeah, it was fun talking with you. And uh, thank you for doing what you're doing. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. So I'd like to thank Stephen Pope for being on our podcast today. He is a core candidate assistant professor in the Environmental Studies Program and also an MA Resilient Leadership Program. So thank you. Thank you. On behalf of the Naropa community, thank you for listening to Mindful You, the official podcast of Naropa University. Check us out at www.naropa.edu or follow us on social media for more updates.